Today is December 16th, 2020, and welcome to the 21st episode of Below Zero, a podcast about Buffalo from Buffalo. I'm Adam, and I'm going to bring you the latest Buffalo happenings, including sports, politics, music, and everything else in Western New York life. So, uh, welcome back, everybody. Uh, Number one, I need to stop saying when I'm going to do the next episodes because life always seems to get in the way and then I don't do it and uh, I don't want that. So I'm not going to start putting uh, you know those, those deadlines on myself because I always seem to get too busy to record and then miss them and that's no good for anybody. Number two, uh, if you're listening, I imagine you probably noticed that the sound quality is a lot better. And that's because when the Bills played the Steelers the other night, uh, no, none of them Brandon came over. Producer Brandon stopped by. He's actually a Steelers fan. He grew up in Pittsburgh. Buffalo is his second team, so it was a fun time to watch the game. But when he was over, I had him take a look at all the equipment that he left behind, and he helped me sound better. So... All the recording from now on will sound like I know what the heck I'm doing, at least a little bit, at least a little bit. So thank you to Brandon for that. And we're also going to get into that Bills game later on, so stay tuned for that. Uh, The thing I'm going to start with this week are the governor's emails. He's doing them three times a week now. Uh, So we're back to getting almost daily updates from Governor Andrew Cuomo. So a couple things that he has put in his emails in the past week or so. Number one, the most important, was back on December 7th, uh, regions that reach, quote, critical hospital capacity, unquote, will be designated as a red zone under New York's microcluster strategy. Critical hospital capacity is defined as 90% of hospital capacity, in other words, 90% full. Following the implementation of the state's surge and flex protocol, if the region's seven-day average hospitalization growth rate shows that the region will reach 90% hospital capacity within the next three weeks, the region will become a red zone. And the reason I'm pointing this out is because it's never been about getting zero COVID cases, right? If they wanted to say we don't want a single person to get sick or die, they would have to do a lot. But they're not willing to take those, those steps. So what they're saying is, We are willing to let some of you get sick. We are willing to let some of you die, as long as you don't overwhelm our hospitals. We need that dang economy open, and therefore, we're okay with some of you dying for that. That's basically the idea here, which is, you know, pretty disappointing to hear, but it's it's not surprising, all right? Disappointing and surprising are very, very different things. And then on the 11th, he followed up on this a little bit. To protect hospital capacity, New York will implement new metrics to determine microcluster zones. Under these updated metrics, red, orange, and yellow zones will now be determined as follows. A red zone will be implemented when a region reaches a critical hospital capacity, that is when 90% of beds are full, after measures to increase capacity have been taken. An orange zone will be implemented if an area has 4% positivity rate over the past 10 days on a 7-day average and is located in a region that has reached 85% hospital capacity. A yellow zone will be implemented if an area has a 3% positivity rate over the past 10 days on a 7-day average and is in the top 10% in the state for hospital admissions per capita over the past week and is experiencing week-over-week growth in daily admissions. So I know that's a lot of words, and I'm not really sure what half of that means either. Uh, he even says, it sounds complicated, but the basic idea behind these metrics is to ensure that hospital systems are not overloaded. That's the big thing now is not overloading the hospitals because that's what we saw back in the first 
outbreak of the coronavirus down in New York City, and we saw it in other countries before it even happened here. So they overwhelmed the hospital systems to the point where people were being put in hospital beds out in the street under tents, and uh, you know the, the the dead bodies were piling up in in awful ways, and so the the system could not handle that. So the the thing they're trying to do now is making sure the system can handle the influx of cases. Uh, so they're like I said, they're saying, look, some of you might get sick, and that's okay. Some of you are going to die, and we're okay with that. We just need to make sure our hospitals can handle it. Uh, and so he followed up in the same day, I will sign an executive order extending the state's moratorium on commercial evictions. This moratorium will provide support to small businesses and other tenants during these difficult times. These businesses need help now more than ever, and Congress must include support for bars and restaurants in the next stimulus package. So from day one, this has been the way that Cuomo has gone about his eviction moratorium. He's been including businesses at all times, which is not necessarily a bad thing. But now it is the only moratorium evictions that he is extending. He is not extending the one on residential evictions. So that is set to expire January 1st. And we are in the middle of the second wave. And they're going to reopen courts and start kicking people out of their homes again, not only during winter, but during the global pandemic. Uh, this is going to be oh, very bad. I've been saying it for a long time. And so at the end of this, you know, the, the, there was a study that was done that said almost 11,000 extra deaths and hundreds of thousands of extra corona cases, coronavirus cases have been attributed to evictions nationwide. And so keep that in mind when you hear about evictions that are going to start back up again in the state of New York soon. These are going to lead to extra cases of coronavirus. They're going to lead to deaths. You think about somebody who has to move out of an apartment in the middle of winter. Maybe they have family that they can move in with, but that's going to increase the number of people that are probably living without masks inside a small space, and they're going to be spreading the virus more to each other. And it's funny because Cuomo is also railing against the quote-unquote living room spread, but he's going to be causing it by letting people get evicted. So... Uh, when the narrative comes back about how the state handled everything, don't forget that all of this, all these awful negative consequences absolutely could have been avoided. Now, there's some news that the Senate Assembly, I'm sorry, the Senate and Assembly are looking to get back into session and raise taxes on the rich pretty soon. So that is good news. We'll see if that happens and, and to what extent it does happen. But that is just the smallest thing that we need to, to work on now. There are still pending bills around housing as far as canceling rent and mortgage payments and canceling evictions until March and things like that, bills that we need passed. So talk to your elected uh, representatives, your legislators, let them know that they need to do their jobs. All right. So some news from the past week or so. This is an interesting one. Grand Island residents, again, mobilizing against new warehouse project. So if people remember, Amazon had announced this big, uh, I guess you can call it a warehouse, that they were going to build on Grand Island. And the, the people that live there stood up and said, absolutely not. This is going to be a, a, an environmental nightmare. And they fought, it, they fought back and they beat it, just like they did down in New York City. Uh, and now there's another warehouse project happening. 
So a citizens group on Grand Island is mobilizing again in an effort to block the latest mega warehouse proposal for the town, claiming the project by Aquest development would be far too large and does not fit with the general character of the community. The arguments by the Coalition for Responsible Economic Development for Grand Island largely mirror what the group used to successfully object to the plan this summer by national developer Trammell Crow to build a distribution facility for online retailer Amazon. The proposed Amazon project on a 144-acre plot of land next to between Long and Bedell Roads did not comply with the town code, so the developer sought a rezoning of the property that necessitated more reviews, hearings, and public input. Strong negative reaction eventually caused Amazon to cancel what had been dubbed Project Olive in economic development circles. And so that obviously makes sense. They were trying to say, well, this building we want to build doesn't match the zone, doesn't match the codes, but we want you to let us do it anyway. And the community got together and said, absolutely not. So in this case, Aquest wants to put up a 1.08 million square foot high bay facility, but with no tenant lined up and the potential to divide it among multiple users. So this is another one of those, hey, we're going to build it and we're going to promise you an economic benefit later. But we all know how that often turns out. Look at no further than uh, Tesla with the solar uh, panel warehouse down in South Buffalo and the problems that they've been having there for years. So that's less than a third of the size of Amazon's 3.78 million square foot facility, although it's also one third larger in its ground footprint and would involve 138 acres compared to 123 acres for Amazon. But the new project would be only one story tall and 45 feet in height with 1,292 parking spaces, 30% fewer than the Amazon plan, and 383 trailer spaces, a 75% increase. And according to Aquest officials, it complies fully with the town code, so it doesn't require more than planning board approval of the design and site plan. And so this is where we come to a problem in our laws where corporate interests have been dumping money into politicians' pockets since the dawn of time, right? And so the zoning, the, the planning board, the, these are they're, they're following through and executing laws that have been put in place to help businesses, right? Because if it didn't help a business, they would be funding the other politicians. And so now that you've met the requirements, that doesn't necessarily mean this building is going to be fine and not going to have a, a negative economic impact. I'm sorry, uh, environmental impact as well as maybe economic as well. So the citizens group is calling for a fresh environmental review of the project, which is a smart thing to do. Uh, we anticipate a variety of substantial impacts to our quality of life, including traffic, health, impacts to wildlife and habitats, impacts to migratory birds in the Niagara River, said Kathy Rayhill, spokeswoman for the group. Uh, so we'll definitely be keeping an eye on this situation. We always like to see when residents are mobilizing to fight back against mega conglomerates and, and possible negative developments in real estate. Uh, the first thing I'm thinking of right now is the building that Ellicott Development just built down in the corner of Tupper and Franklin, right? So it is, I'm sure it comports with all city codes and everything, but the when, when people are leaving that building at the end of a, a, a business day, that intersection is was never meant to handle that sort of car traffic. And so it has completely overwhelmed that area, which you can't drive through there anywhere between 4 and 5.30. You just, I wouldn't even bother. So those are the, those are the kind of issues that even if you follow the, the codes, follow the planning boards, you still are going to cause problems. So we'll see what happens here. 
Um, so next story is something that has certainly caused a lot of problems is the school speed zone cameras in the city of Buffalo. So this was a fight between the mayor and the common council where the mayor vetoed these cameras and then the common council overrode his veto first time in 16 years that he ever actually used a veto and then it was immediately overridden by the common council and so they eventually came to some sort of agreement between the mayor and the common council that these school zone cameras would be in place they'd only operate during school hours and everything was supposed to be hunky-dory so this article says that no it's not at all Buffalo's school zone safety program has been plagued with so many mistakes and missteps that some city lawmakers are considering keeping the speed zones but pausing or ending the ticketing component. The program uses cameras to capture speeding drivers in 20 school speed zones near public, private, and charter schools. Drivers captured on camera traveling at least 26 miles per hour while beacons are flashing receive a $50 citation mailed to the car's registered owner. From that, the city receives $36 and $14 goes to the camera company, Census Getzo. That's a, a pretty big chunk to the, the the corporation that just put the cameras up. But some common council members said Tuesday that they have heard too many complaints about the program, among them that hundreds of citations were sent out before cameras started operating again briefly in October. Some constituents have received speeding citations for times when the cameras were not supposed to be activated. Often, no one answers the phone number listed on the citation to call for more information or messages were left and went unreturned. And some motorists have received citations, paid the ticket, and then received multiple duplicate tickets for the same violation. So this is just a complete clown show. Absolutely nothing going right. The re-examination of the program comes amid the news about 20,000 motorists who received speeding citations postmarked more than 14 business days after the date of the alleged infraction will have their fines dismissed or receive a complete refund if they've already paid. Mayor Byron, uh, Mayor Byron Brown said in a statement that his administration has spoken to the vendor to express its, his disappointment and will hold the vendor accountable for the situation while ensuring that an error like this does not occur again. And this is the problem is that when you are exporting all this stuff, when you are externalizing, when you are giving all the power to these outside vendors, then if they screw up, what are you supposed to do about it? You wag your finger at them and say, we're very angry at you, but you usually have a contract and good luck. Um, the Common Council adopted a resolution Tuesday requesting Corporation Council to provide an opinion on the validity of the tickets that have been issued since the November 17th ordinance amendment that changed the hours of enforcement and mandated additional signage and relocation of beacons to warn drivers that they are approaching a speed zone. I, I, I also wanted to read this paragraph because I like to point out I, as much as possible, as often as I can, that the Common Council doesn't actually do what we think it does. Um, they cannot write new laws or changes to the city charter. That is done by Corporation Council, which is appointed by Mayor Byron Brown. The Common Council adopts resolutions asking the Corporation Council to do things. So if they want to do a new law, they have to ask Mayor Brown's Corporation Council to write it for them. Absolutely wild system we have here in Buffalo. Council members say, in many instances, the beacons have not been moved and signs have not been added, which has contributed to driver confusion. The resolution also requests from the administration the number of citations allegedly issued outside of the stated enforcement days and hours. The council is also asking the administration to review and refund all invalid school speed zone citations without the person needing to request it. 
which is just terrible that we have to come to this point where the common council is begging corporation council to do all this investigating and then they should just cancel all these tickets that would be the prudent and proper way to handle this if you cannot discern which ones are good and which ones aren't you should just cancel all the tickets start from scratch with a proper brand new system that actually works but um because the city made millions of dollars the first week that these cameras were in operation they are not about to strangle that golden goose you know that it, and this has been nothing but a a naked cash grab from the start which when people were looking at it from the outside it was pretty easy for most of us to say yeah this is just a cash grab by the city uh, their finances have been in the toilet for years now thanks to fiscal mismanagement by the mayor's office and now they are trying to scramble to try to make up some of the of the gap and so what better way to do that than to um you know, add extra fines. Fines and fees are a huge problem because they disproportionately affect lower income people. And when it comes to speeding cameras in the city of Buffalo, they're also going to disproportionately affect lower income people. Ah, so that's enough of that. This is an interesting one that uh, just came out yesterday. So family of man and police death sets conditions for settlement. So uh, we, we've heard very often about um, after the police kill somebody their family wants justice and they will sue and and they will go to court maybe they settle out of court that's usually what happens uh, it is not terribly often that anybody goes to trial in these things but this one could be different the attorney for the family of Troy A. Hodge, the Lockport man who died after a fracas with the city's police last year, has released a list of demands Hodge's family wants fulfilled before settling a wrongful death lawsuit against the city. Any settlement likely would have to include a cash payment, attorney Joseph D. Morath Jr. said. But the terms he presented also include the firing of two officers and punishment for two others, new training to prevent future situations like Hodges, and the hiring of black police officers. Lockport has never had one. So I'm not going to say that hiring black officers is automatically or magically going to solve the problem, but the fact that Lockport has never had a black police officer is just wildly inappropriate to me. Um, it's, it's, It's a problem when the systems of white supremacy reinforce themselves over and over and over again. So, uh, continuing, financial recovery is important for Hodge's daughter, but that's the second step, Morath said. Mrs. Hodge wants reform to the police department, he added, uh, referring to Fatima Z. Hodge, Troy Hodge's mother. She sued the city in June near the first anniversary of her 39-year-old son's death, June 16, 2019, after a struggle with police outside her home. Um, this is the reason this is interesting is because most of the time these things happen behind closed doors. Uh, families will will hire lawyers and they will try to to get what justice they feel they can against the police and against the municipality. And like I said, that usually ends with some sort of out of court settlement that nobody really hears about. Uh, now they do make those payments public eventually, but usually by that time people have kind of moved on and they might see the the small story in the paper and not think too much of it. So with with this, you know, the, the Hodge family making a big deal out of this this way, hopefully this will start to break down the idea that uh, police are separate from us and they don't have any sort of accountability toward the communities. 
and the people that police uh, that the people that they police. And the final thing I wanted to point out in this article, Mayor Michelle M. Roman declined to comment on the family's conditions for a settlement short of trial because of the pending litigation. The settlement offer will be reviewed with our insurance company, but it's not something we can comment on until the investigation is completed, Corporation Counsel Laura Miskell Benedict said. And Lockport has liability insurance through New York Municipal Insured Reciprocal, which has hired Rochester attorney Patrick B. Nalen to handle the case. Nalen said he wouldn't comment without clearing it with his client. And the reason I, I mention this is because when, when these settlements happen, uh, let's just say the police have a, a, a fight with a person and that person sues and the police end up paying $50,000 in the settlement. The police don't pay that settlement. That settlement comes out of municipal funds. Um, these, these insurance policies that they have to purchase for the police comes out of municipal funds. So police don't pay out of their own pockets for any indiscretions that they do. And so they face almost no actual consequences when they commit crimes while in the line of duty. Uh, and we are trying to get laws passed around this because it is just unacceptable that the people who ostensibly are there to serve and protect but also have the ability to take life never have to worry about the consequences of their actions. They really don't. And so that is an incredibly important thing that, that we need to work on changing uh, moving forward. So these are coupled from today real quickly. Uh, Cleveland will change its nickname. So the Cleveland baseball team. Cleveland's Major League Baseball team made official Monday its plan to change the team's name from Indians following years of protests and pressure from Native American groups and others who saw it as racially insensitive. However, the new unchosen name won't take effect until 2022, and in the meantime, the team will continue to be known as the Indians. While Indians will always be part of our history, owner Paul Dolan said in a statement, it is time to move forward and work to unify our stakeholders and fans through a new name. The move comes following months of discussion with leaders of Native American groups, as well as civic leaders, leading researchers, fans, corporate partners, and players, according to the team's statement. Those talks began in earnest in July, in the wake of the public reckoning over race and social, uh, social justice issues following the death of George Floyd while in police custody in Minneapolis. So this didn't happen because people asked nicely. And this didn't happen because groups organized and opposed it this happened because people got out in the streets and they said we're not going to take this any longer that's why the washington football team is now called the washington football team dan snyder the owner of the washington football team said for years that he would never change the team name but he did this year and do you want to know why because people demanded it and they didn't just ask nicely they got out there and they shut down cities and they made it happen. So I, I say this just to say that don't let anybody ever tone police you and say that what you're asking for is too much or you're asking in a too aggressive way because you know what? If you ask in a nice way, it's much easier for them to dismiss you. And so this article even points out that they only really started taking this seriously starting in July, even though they've been asked, people have been asking for years. So after reflecting upon those discussions, the team said, we believe our organization is at its best when we can unify our community and bring people together, and we believe a new name will allow us to do this more fully. 
it wasn't really the people. It was, let's be honest, more than anything, is probably the corporate money. Uh, that was certainly a, a big part of Dan Snyder changing his mind about his team's name was when FedEx, who has their name on their football team's field, a huge sponsor for the team, said, hey, we're going to pull our sponsorship if you don't do something about this. And the only reason FedEx did that is, again, because the people demanded it. So don't ever think that you don't have power. You have a lot of power. It's just when you you have to work with others to flex it. One person alone not much power. 10 people together, more power. 100 people together, a lot more power. So it, it really is a strength in numbers game. And the more we get together and more we fight together, the more we win. So Philip Yenyo is executive director of the American Indian Movement of Ohio, one of four groups comprising the Cleveland Indigenous Coalition, which consulted with a team on the name change, praised the team's decision, saying in a telephone interview, this has been a six-decade-long fight. We've had, we've had elders that have crossed over to the spirit world who were part of this fight. I believe the announcement by the team is absolutely the right decision. I'm incredibly happy for people like this, that they have been fighting for way too long to get just the smallest piece of, of justice from, from this team, and they've achieved it. So I'm, I'm you know, very, very happy about that. And further to the point, this next paragraph. In 2019, the team began phasing out its, quote, Chief Wahoo, unquote, mascot a grinning red-faced caricature that was criticized by Native American groups and others as racist, replacing it on caps, jerseys, and other merchandise with a block C design. But Yenyo and others felt at the time the change did not go far enough, and they were 100% right, uh, correct about that. Having that name, it still made it seem okay for the fans to come down dressed in red face, wearing sacred feathers, making the chants, he said. These are things that were important to our culture, a living culture. To me and a lot of Native people, it is a complete and utter insult. It's perpetuating hurtful and harmful stereotypes. And this is certainly something that other teams now have to begin to reckon with. The Chicago Blackhawks hockey team is the only one that when they released all the fancy new alternate sweaters, they didn't show the front of theirs. It seems as if they're beginning to realize that they, maybe they should be ashamed of their logo. And then the Kansas City Chiefs, really bad, really bad. And they are still doing the Kansas City Chop, which is one of the most racist things in the world right now. Um, so we're, we're, the, the conversation is changing. It is moving, but we cannot let up because if we let up and allow these teams to control the narrative and make it seem like they're doing it out of the goodness of their hearts, the, the work that's been done by so many people will be lost. So yeah, don't let them do that. This is, this is a win for the people who have been struggling against this for decades. Uh, so last piece of news, uh, City of Buffalo seeks redevelopment of Mohawk Ramp. So this is just a ramp that's downtown. It's bounded by Washington, East Mohawk, and Ellicott Streets. The aging multi-level facility sits in the heart of downtown. If um, you don't know the area, it's right next to Mohawk Place. Uh, I remember parking right in front of this ramp on the, on the street there on Washington and walking to Mohawk Place. And it, this ramp used to be where Mohawk Street cuts through. There, there used to be a street here. And the, the, the point I, was, I wanted to make with this is I, I read this book, City on the Edge, by Mark Goldman recently. And it, it was an amazing book that detailed about 100 years of Buffalo history from McKinley's visit in, I want to say, 1901 when he was assassinated 
all the way up through the mid-aughts. And it, it went through the glory days when Buffalo was expanding and spreading, and it was a huge part of the not just nationwide but worldwide art scene and culture and music uh, in, in all neighborhoods of the city. And then it goes through the decline. And one of the biggest things I took away from the decline of Buffalo, starting in the post-war area, uh, 40s, 50s, is not just the white flight. That was, of course, an enormous problem that many cities faced. But above and beyond that, the, what the, the so, so-called quote-unquote urban renewal experts did to this city and the number of beautiful and historic buildings they knocked down in the name of progress. And the vast majority of them were knocked down to build parking lots. So buildings that had been there since the 1800s were knocked down to build a surface-level parking lot so that people could drive in from the suburbs, go to their jobs, and then drive home at the end of the day. And that was why the 198 was built. That's why the 33 was built. That's why the 190 was built. You know, all these awful, awful neighborhood-destroying things were done in the name of urban renewal, but that was a fancy way of saying, get the white people into the city and then get them out when they want to go home. That's, it's, it's so sad I, when I see pictures of, of Buffalo back before all this happened. And I hear my, my parents tell stories about when they were kids, the things that, that they remembered from when they were young. Uh, I wish I could have seen Buffalo in its heyday. But thanks to this, now we have to reverse it. And the article saying that they're hoping for somebody to redevelop that spot where this parking ramp sits, which is barely being used, and say, hey, I don't know, put in some uh, apartments. Or, you know, and, and of course, it has a quote from Mayor Byron Brown talking about getting young people in. But if we're just, we're always catering to the same crowd, then we're not building a, a Buffalo that's truly for everybody. That's been our, our concern since, since day one, and it always will be, is if we're always trying to get the young professionals, we can't have a city full of young professionals. There just aren't enough of them around. And what does that mean for everybody who's already here? This is the gentrification conversation. If there is a neighborhood where the young professionals keep moving into, they're going to price the people that were already there out. And then we have a problem because those people have to go somewhere. Now they've, they have to leave their, their longtime home. Their, their sense of community is destroyed. And, and that's been happening for decades here in Buffalo. So we have to work together on these things. It can't be the developers swooping in and dumping money into our neighborhoods because you know what? They're investing because they want something back. They want to make their money back and then some. It's not out of the goodness of their hearts. So we need to take control of our city. And on that note, I should mention that India Walton is running for mayor. Uh, I, 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 I'm lucky and, and honored to count India as a friend and comrade, and she is amazing. And I'm really, really excited to, to see what she can do. So... Keep an ear out, keep an eye out for India, follow her on all the social media platforms because it's going to be fun. It's going to be really fun. So yeah, the Buffalo Bills won. How about those Buffalo Bills? I know I haven't uh, talked about them much on the podcast because it was always more fun to talk about sports with other people, Brandon and Andy and whoever else may have joined us, but the Buffalo Bills are kind of exciting and that's not 
something I certainly expected this season. I figured that they would certainly be a decent team, uh, and I was expecting them to be solidly in that second level of teams in the NFL. So I didn't think that they were going to compete for a championship because, I mean, when do Bills fans ever think they're going to do that? I mean, realistic Bills fans. When do realistic Bills fans ever think they're going to compete for a championship? But they are they are surprising this year. They're very exciting, and a lot of that is squarely upon the shoulders of Josh Allen. He has grown into a really good quarterback. He has gotten away from the things that made him both really exciting but also frustrating. Uh, Back in the first two seasons, yeah, he would take off at the drop of a dime and he would run, and that was great because it's really hard to game plan for a quarterback like that. But at the same time, he was also very, very cavalier with the ball, and he would make just the most ill-advised throws game in and game out. And he would try to rely on his arm strength too much, and that would get him into trouble. But what we're seeing this year is his maturation as a player, and it is really, really exciting just to see him have an incredibly – strong grasp of not only Brian Dable's offense, but also what defenses are going to do to try to slow him down. And he has been really, really good at taking what the defenses give him and then setting up the the longer shots downfield with play action and with the short passing game. And the addition of Stefan Diggs just can never be understated. He is a bonafide superstar receiver. He is uh, the number one receiver in in the NFL with 100 catches. He's third in yards with 1,167. And he's going to set career highs in both of those easily. And right now with 100 catches, he's tied for the franchise record for the Bills with Eric Moulds. And it's, it's wild that he still has three games to go just to run up the score as far as the Bills catch record. And he'll probably break the, the yardage record as well. So that is really, really fun. They're 10-3 and three right now. And if it weren't for that ridiculous Hail Mary pass against the Cardinals, they would, they would be on a, I believe, seven-game win streak. And they'd be 11-2, which is just out of this world. So we just knocked off the Steelers on Sunday Night Football. And the Steelers were going in. They had just lost their first game of the season. And I was really disappointed because I thought we were going to win. And so I wanted to be the team that knocked them from the unbeaten ranks. But we had to, you know, fall in line behind the Washington football team. Good for them that they're still below 500, but they beat uh, an undefeated team. And then we came in and we mopped up the mess. We took care of what was left, which is not much. The game itself was really boring for the first, almost first half. And there were 10 punts in the first quarter alone between the two teams. And that was the most in one quarter so far this season. You know, that was ridiculously boring football. And I remember Brandon and I just sitting there, you know, he's, he's across the room wearing a mask in a chair. And I'm sitting there on the couch and I just turned to him and say, this, is, this game sucks. And then it all turned around with a Taron Johnson pick six. And I was so happy for Johnson because he's kind of had a rough year. Uh, as far as his coverage as the slot cornerback. But watching that replay and seeing him read Roethlisberger's eyes the entire time, it was just a masterclass in in defending a, a pass play. He never took his eyes off the quarterback, and he it may, the, the pass may, have well, may as well have been for him because yeah, he was right there and just 
it, it was never in doubt. The second he had the ball in his hands, I knew he was going to take it all the way. It was just so exciting. We haven't seen, we haven't seen a defensive touchdown in Buffalo in, I think they said 46 games. That's almost three full seasons since we've had a, a defensive touchdown. So definitely overdue on that one. And another t- player who I thought, you know, has had a rough go of it, who had a really good game was Levi Wallace. Uh, they picked on him last week. Uh, he, you know, he's, he's the, the, unfortunately has the job of the cornerback opposite Trey White. So when you have an all-star cornerback like Trey White, the other teams are not going to want to throw at him that much, and they're going to pick on anybody else on the field. And so Levi Wallace has that really unfortunate job of being the guy that they're going to target a lot more. And he's had some you know tough days in coverage, but he had a really good day against the Steelers, and he had that really, really acrobatic interception on the, on the Roethlisberger pass. And it, it was a really good thing for him. I'm happy for him. Happy for the whole defense. I guess in the past three or four games, they are starting to round into form, and they're definitely not a team that anybody wants to see right now. And it is a really, really good sign that they were that dominant. And I, w- I want to say dominant because the offense took some time to get started, and it was crazy. It really was at halftime. They said, oh, wait a minute. We have Stephon Diggs. Let's throw to him a whole bunch. And that was really what turned the game around because – once Taron Johnson took that pick six to the house, going out in the first drive of the third quarter, they scored, and they had never looked back. It was the Bills game entirely from that point on. And so it was really good to see them play that kind of dominant smash-mouth football in cold weather because that was and has been one of the knocks, or not knocks, but just one of the question marks around Josh Allen. is like, can he perform in inclement weather? And I don't understand where that that – question came from because it's uh, it's one of those things that is just a narrative that they use in the NFL to try to just criticize quarterbacks but usually not based up based on any sort of fact and a lot of quarterbacks play maybe better in, in bad weather because um, the receivers have a, a bit of a leg up on the on the the defenders because if you know your route and the footing isn't good you can get open a little bit easier sometimes so yeah Stefan Diggs had 10 catches for 130 yards and he is just rounding out into an exciting player and I cannot believe we got him I'm glad that the Vikings picked a really good wide receiver with the the pick that we sent to them but I would much rather have Stefan Diggs at this moment and he's going to be an incredible piece of this team moving forward and we will have some tough decisions to make in this offseason as far as people to keep and some salary to clear. Trent Murphy has been inactive on the defensive line for the past two or three games, and I think that is probably going to be a contract that they will shed this offseason, and a lot of it is due to other people rounding into form, such as A.J. Epineza and uh, Ed Oliver starting to, to pick it up. He was starting to pick it up last year, and I think the whole defense seemed to start slowly this year. A lot of it went through the linebackers. And when Tremaine Edmonds had that shoulder injury and Matt Milano was out and A.J. Klein was struggling, that was really setting the tone for the rest of the defense because we don't have a super strong pass rush. And we are also missing Starla Tulele at nose tackle, the one-technique defensive tackle. And so without him clogging up the middle and without the, the linebackers being free to jump on things all like they were last year and the year before, the whole defense kind of struggled at the same time. But with people getting healthy and uh, the defensive tackles 
have been starting to show up, like Justin Zimmer, Vernon Butler. Uh, a lot of the depth is really, really starting to come through and pay off. And so the whole defense is is picking it up at the right time. And it's just going to be a really, really fun, exciting end to the season. There's, like I said, three games left, and we are only one game out of the second seed. Now, unfortunately, the second seed doesn't get a buy anymore after they changed the rules this past offseason. Only the top team in the conference gets the first round buy. And we're not catching the Chiefs. We would have to beat everybody in front of us. They would have to lose the rest of their schedule because, you know, we already lost to the Chiefs. They have a tiebreaker on us. We're not getting the first round by, but we are absolutely in the conversation for the second seed. I was thinking that the Steelers were going to lose another game. I didn't think the Bills would win, maybe when, if you would ask me three weeks ago, but I thought the Steelers could finish with the same record as the Bills, and then we would win a tiebreaker somehow. Um, but yeah, yeah, this is, this is really, really exciting. So... I'm trying not to get too far ahead of myself because you don't want to do that in this league. That is how you get to trouble. But I do expect the Bills to beat the Denver Broncos. I know I've gotten some flack for that from friends that say you're going to jinx it. Uh, there's no such thing. Either they're prepared to play the Broncos or they're not. And I am fully expecting them to be prepared to beat a, a worse team. The Broncos are not as good as the Buffalo Bills, and the Bills should win this game. So, uh, yeah, I'm just putting that out there. And then... God help me. I can see the Bills beating the Broncos, going to Foxborough and beating the Patriots, who are not very good, and then finishing out the, the schedule with a win against the, the Dolphins. I could see this team going 13-3. and God help me. <laughs> I never thought I'd hear myself say something like that, but I I don't know. I, I just When you look at the games one by one, you pick a winner based on the teams as they are looking right now. That's what I see. So if you have any input on that, I would love to hear it. And, you know, as always, thank you all for listening. You can rate and subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher, and you can follow us on Twitter at B-L-O-Z-E-R-O podcast or email at uh, B-L-O-Z-E-R-O podcast at gmail.com if you have any questions, comments, or episode ideas. And then finally, if you like what's going on with this podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash B-L-O-Z-E-R-O podcast. You can contribute to the show for as little as $1 a month, and that would be greatly appreciated. So thank you, everybody. Have a great rest of your day, and go Bills!